Good afternoon. I'm Chrissy Hewitt, and my guests today on Ears on Art are Beverly Brown and Mae Wilson. We're going to focus today with Beverly, and next week we'll be talking with Mae. This Saturday and Sunday, Open Studios Art Tour, sponsored by Arts Obispo, is having a bonus weekend. The catalog is online at artsobispo.org, and you can find any of the three of us in that catalog. But there are lots of artists to see throughout the county. Hope you'll get out and find a few. Now, here are Beverly Brown and Mae Wilson. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in terms of what their basic disciplines are about. Beverly. I'm Beverly Brown. I have a home studio, lapidary, wire artist. And May? Hi, I'm May. I work mostly in printmaking, woodblock, Japanese woodblock, etching, and I'm going more and more narrative. So um, I'm becoming very interested in cartoons and sequential art and illuminated uh, novels and all those kinds of things, putting writing with words. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about, and we're actually going to break this into two parts. So today's program is going to be mostly with Bev, but the two have shared my studio with me during Open Studios for the last three years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so they've gotten to know each other because they're up on the deck playing around while I'm in my studio, (laughs) you know, missing all the fun. So... Um, Hardly. (laughs) I I know that they will chime in to each other. Yeah, we have a lot of fun together in open studios out on the deck. Yeah. Getting into wire and uh, woodblock fights, it's dangerous stuff. (laughs) Exactly. Well, in point of fact, we work very hard to make sure that we have demos and stuff going on during our open studio. So May either has a printing press there or she has wood blocks that she's carving and Beverly is usually wire wrapping right? I usually demonstrate how I make the Viking knit chains and other ancient arts. Well why don't we start with the chains because that's one that people sometimes see it certainly has an age to it I mean Vikings weren't around yesterday so uh, how did you get interested in that one? Well I'd like to tell how I got into chains in general. Uh, In 2001, I joined a gem and mineral society in um, uh, Castro Valley, where I lived for two years. I cut a lot of beautiful stones, and I just kept cutting them and cutting them. And the next thing you know, I had a whole pile of cabochons. And I thought, what do I want to do with all those cabochons? And I saw some of the old guys sitting around the table in the shop, and they were wrapping their cabochons with wire. I asked them what they were doing, and they said, come on here, honey, sit down, and I'll show you how to do this. So I learned how to wrap cabochons and make pendants out of them. Then I had all these pendants that I wondered what I should do with those, and I looked around for chains. The purchase chains were very expensive, the ones that deserved my my pendants, so uh, I thought maybe I'd try making some. I looked around for different kinds of chains, and I found Viking knit chain, and I really love the look of them, and they're substantial, so uh, 
and they're beautiful, and they take a lot of time to make, and they deserve my pendants. <laughs> so. <laughs> and I believe some people even just purchase them for a single chain, yes, or maybe two do. or three, or whatever, yeah, without anything see. hanging on them. Yeah, so. that's true. Fortunately, I have the advantage here that I have seen this process in the construction stage, but maybe you can give just a, a sense yeah. of what you do. Yeah, it's radio, but if I have this in front of me, I can talk about it better. I have in front of me a small bench vise that I, I don't attach it to my table. It's a mandrel that I've made out of a crochet hook. The shaft of the crochet hook acts as a mandrel, and it's clamped in the vise. You can make Viking net with mainly things you can, that you have on, around the house. You can use a pencil even to, to make Viking knit with. All you need is thin wire. I use 28 gauge wire. You can use 26 gauge. It's very thin wire. I make a starter uh, with scrap wire and then I, with, and it has six loops on it usually and I make six vertical rows. And I, I actually knit it with my hands. It's just a series of half hitches, loops, and you just, do one loop after the other, and you do it thousands of times to make the chain. And I have to weave, a, weave about 12 to 15 inches of this, and it comes out. It's a cylinder, actually, of wire. And then I pull it through a draw plate. And a draw plate is a block of wood, usually hardwood, and it has a series of succeedingly smaller and smaller holes through which I draw this cylinder of wire that I just made. It usually takes me about eight hours to weave one, oh, 12-inch piece. And then it gets longer right. when I pull it through the draw plate and also gets more flexible, which is counterintuitive maybe, <laughs> but because wire work hardens, the wire itself work hardens, but the structure of the weave gets looser. All right. And this, as you say, is just one of several different styles of chains that have been passed down through the ages, either through the Vikings or other folk. Uh, some of them are linked, some of them are woven. It's mm -hmm. pretty exciting. And it's an intricate kind of thing that I'm sure your customers are always looking at you with this. How did this happen? Yes, my customers are always asking me how I did it. And so I usually... Wherever I go to shows or art events, I um, have to take my demonstration with me because I know they're going to ask me how I did it so I can show them. Do you think most of the time that they end up feeling, well, I mean, grateful for that explanation, but I'm wondering, does it take any of the magic out of it for them at all? Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, that's so much easier than I thought it would be or something? No, actually, they say, that looks so tedious. That's, oh, that's so hard. And I usually bring along thicker craft wire and set something up so they can try it, too. And I, I do teach um, this as a class, too. Some people, a few people, want to learn how to do it. I don't find it tedious. One of the things kind of about that, watching her do that and uh, watching you take it through the draw plate, it actually adds a little bit of magic to it for me. It's like, whoa, look what happened. I, I think that's the best thing with a good demo is 
watching the labor behind the tricks of what, what makes these things happen, it becomes more interesting when you learn the details on what goes on behind the stage. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I certainly think so. But sometimes if somebody has an image that something is just so absolutely impossible, they can't even figure out how it would be done. And then now they have that image of how it's done. And then they also get to appreciate that it doesn't happen in two minutes. And therefore, for many people, that becomes the barrier to thinking that they could ever do it because they'd never last that long. Yeah, that's true. And another aspect of it, too, is that when people come to see my work, they'll walk by and they look at it and they think it's pretty maybe, but they don't realize that I've made it because it looks manufactured. It's so even and stuff. So... I have to tell people, I hate to tell people all the time that I, I made that. And they say, and then they'll stop and they'll say, you made that? Mm -hmm. Then, well, how did you do it? Mm -hmm. And then I, then I whip this demonstration out and I show them. I've been having that problem sometimes just wearing a necklace during the day. And I will get comments on it. And then they'll say, whoa, that's incredible. And... I'm wanting to say yes, and I made it, and the other part of me is sort of shyly saying thank you very much, and if I have a friend with me, then they're the ones yeah. that say, oh, and by the way. <laughs> yeah. They'll be your kind of art wingman, yeah. <laughs> They'll be I'm like, yeah. I'm in the store and at the checkout or something, and somebody admires my jewelry, I say, well, I made it. I made the chain, too. And I, <laughs> Here's my card. <laughs> Come and see me. <laughs> No. I want to talk a little bit too to the other aspect of what you do a lot of, and that is wire wrapping. This is something that perhaps more people have seen because it's become a fairly popular dynamic. I've always been impressed with the fact that you have found ways to hold that stone and not obliterate it with so much wire that you can't see it. The reason why that's impressive is, is that normally... In my discipline, I'm another facet of jewelry, I'm soldering. So I can connect two ends together, and when you have a stone in place, that's a pretty risky business. So you're having to find ways to do it where that does not apply. Have you found secrets over time, or what kind of things do you really matter when you are designing and constructing a piece? Well, I think it started with my love affair with rocks. I always loved rocks, even as a kid. Then when I started cutting them, when I was in this big lapidary shop in Castro Valley, I just would fall in love with that one rock because I had to hold that rock while I cut it with a saw and then go to this big grinding machine that had six different wheels on it from coarse to fine. I didn't like using a dopstick. A dopstick is something you hold glue it on or wax it onto the back of a slab of rock right. while you're cutting it and shaping it. I didn't like using a dopstick. I just wanted to hold the rock in my hands and do it. Fingers be damned. Yes. No, but I never nicked myself. By the time I was through getting through this whole process, it takes a long time, hours sometimes, I would just get really attached to that rock. It was my baby. So when it came time to wrap it, do the wire wrapping, I wanted the beauty of that rock to show. I didn't want to cover it up with a lot of fancy wire, even though the wire is pretty, but the rock is a star. It's the star. So 
I think that's my philosophy in wire wrapping. And when I wrap a cabochon, I want to have it shine, have it show. And the wire just is there as a functional thing. And maybe one little flare in the wire is enough. Like to make sure with the audience that certain vocabulary words that pop up get defined. I certainly know what a cabochon is, but you want to give a brief description of what that is? Yes. When you make a cabochon, you have to cut a slab of rock, probably five-eighths of an inch to half an inch thick. And then you, want, you need to shape it, either in an oval or round or triangle or something. And then the difference between a slab of rock and a, a cabochon is that a cabochon is round domed on the top, and the back is left flat. So it's mm -hmm. conducive to making pieces of jewelry. Yes, it's conducive to a standard bezel setting, and so you have a base that's always wider, and so it angles up slightly so you can push material around that base, yeah. hold it in place. And so you're doing it with how you anchor the wire and yeah, what yeah, it's doing. Yeah. So in general, a cabochon is a, a style or a cut of stone as opposed to a type of stone. Yes. And is there a meditative sort of quality to that? Like when you're making those chains, when you're like weaving, when you're polishing, it, it seems to me like that's all kind of a... Yeah, it's meditative and it, I think it's good therapy. A lot of people say, oh, that's tedious. And I find it quite therapeutic. I've decided that that you know, statement of, boy, you have real patience or saying it's tedious, whichever side of the coin they're coming from, I've really decided my definition of patience has to do with love because there are a lot of things that I won't give any time of day to at all. If I'm not excited about it or feeling good about it, then why, why bother? And if I'm engrossed in it, then it doesn't matter how much time it takes. Yeah, um, that and think patience also comes with confidence. If you learn the basics of something and you have a good teacher, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it helps to, you know, have a good teacher. And then, you, you know, if you have one build on a little success and just take the right steps to increase your skills, then you can learn the patience comes with just being confident in what you're doing. You alluded to your love of stones mm -hmm. as kind of an entry into a lot of what you're doing. Were you conscious as we are often wanting to ask in this program, kind of how did the creative or art bug kind of start for you in your life? Oh, boy. I've been creative all, all my life, I think. When I was eight years old, I started making potholders and selling them door to door. So I'd have enough money to go horseback riding. Next thing you knew, I was making other things. I just mm -hmm. always wanted to make things. And I was a tailor for 22 years. I learned how to sew when I was in middle school, I think. I just love sewing. So when I had children, had to stay home. It was something I could do mm -hmm. with the kids around. I put an ad in the paper and did dressmaking and alterations. And did your kids grow up with a fondness of making? No, <laughs> not really. My one son did. I had two sons and a daughter. And my daughter, to my chagrin, I guess, uh, I wanted to teach her how to sew. And she said, why should I learn how to sew when I have a mother like you? As if, <laughs> as if to think. But then when she got older and she was a mother, young mother, she called me one day and said, Mom, 
I'm making a dress, um, and I wanted to ask you, what is interfacing? <laughs> I was kind of happy that she asked my advice after all those years. Exactly. My mom tried to teach me once when I was about 13. It's like soft engineering. I don't know if I wasn't ready for it. It was just, it, it's hard. <laughs> Total respect there. Well, I'm very much an advocate of the fact that if you're really fortunate in life, you find your mate in a material or an idea or a process, whether it's in the arts or whatever it is. But if you match up with something by virtue of school, by virtue of you know, being exposed to it by somebody else, whatever it is, it lasts a long time and it starts a whole lot of things going on in your head. And if nothing ever makes that connection, it doesn't. You know, you can't force it, I don't think. Yeah. I've been kind of fickle in my life. I've fallen in love with a lot of different materials. <laughs> well, me too. <laughs> yeah. Yarn. I also do another ancient art called kumihimo braid. It's an ancient Japanese art. It's a fiber art. And I have uh, moro dai, which is uh, the traditional Japanese loom for weaving cord. It's the kind of cords that the Japanese used to secure their obi sashes with and also to connect all those pieces of armor. They were plates of armor that they would connect with silk cord that they made. And I have some. Morabe had its bird festival. Right. And I wanted to make birds. I'd never done it before. Uh, I looked at pictures in my Audubon annual and picked some out that I liked. I had a whole owl family, mother, father, and three babies a vulture and a banana's hummingbird and a couple of ruddy ducks that are going to be earrings. Yeah, and some of them are caught in these circles, yeah. these loops, and they're uh, flying or sitting. Yeah. I enjoy doing the birds. Mm-hmm. And you've done bicycles? Or are there yeah. other yes. objects that yeah, have caught I, your fancy? I kind of like uh, music, so I, I play the dulcimer occasionally. So I got interested in making the treble clef mainly, and the half note, because those two are sort of graceful looking, and especially the treble clef. I love uh, that shape. And it certainly is conducive to wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. So I do a lot of, um, I put it through a rolling mill sometimes, or sometimes I just take a hammer and, and pound it and get different effects that way, different textures. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. I like doing that. I think the wire sculpture is much easier and more fun than, you know, it takes me away from the repetition things that I sometimes do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Krista. You're welcome. Hope that people will come by and see it for real this weekend at Open Studios. That would be fun. And Mae Wilson, we will be listening to your story next week, but you will have your printmaking supplies and images and stuff at Open Studios as well, correct? Yes, I will, absolutely. The Open Studio Art Tour Catalog is available at artsobispo.org. The event is free and features artists from all over the county, and it takes place this weekend. I am Krista Hewitt. This has been Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. On behalf of co-host Stephen DeLuke, thank you so much for listening.